Hi, everybody. My name is Baron McKenzie, and I am a novelist, screenwriter, and playwright situated on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional lands of First Nations and Métis people. I would like to welcome you to the Writers Guild of Alberta's online reading series, where I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Neil Serkin about his brilliant new collection of poems entitled Unbecoming. Thank you to the Writers Guild of Alberta and specifically Sadie, who is running the behind the scenes stuff. And uh, of course, Jason Norman for putting on this event together. Before we get started, I would like to uh, give a rundown of what you can expect tonight. We have about 45 minutes together. First, I will uh, be asking Neil some warm up questions and they're really tough, so get ready. <laughs> then I'd like to invite you to sit back and enjoy as Neil reads some of the excerpts from his newest collection, Unbecoming. At the reading's conclusion, we invite you to ask Neil any questions you have in the chat below, and I will do my very best to get to you as uh, to as many of you as possible. Now, Neil. Neil Serkin is the author of the poetry collections Unbecoming, that's coming out uh, fall of 2021, and On High 2018, both from McGill Queens University Press and the chap books, Their Queer Tenderness, Knife Fork Book 2020, and Supernatural, and Struther Press 2017. And he lives in Calgary. Welcome, Neil. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. <laughs> I'm so thrilled. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you. I, um, uh, Neil, I'm going to tell them. Neil and I cheated and we had a conversation on the weekend. <laughs> and it was like meeting an old friend. It was not old, a friend that I've had for a long time. It was so nice to talk to you. And I was trying to explain to Neil sort of my experience reading uh, his work. And I kind of like, I can't read a whole bunch of your pieces altogether because it's too much. It's like an app, like that drink that you have after dinner, the aperitif or whatever. I need to like read it and think about it and let it absorb in because it changes as the night goes. And some of them have been with me like the next day. So thanks for haunting me. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to know, um, uh, so like, are you, can you tell me where you're from, a little bit about, about your background and kind of what was the thing that drew you to poetry? Yeah, totally. Um, I grew up in the interior of BC, uh, which I just recently read some people think of as Canada's Florida. So go figure. You can see that a little bit in my poems once in a while, a little bit of bite about that. Um, and the thing that like I was obsessed with playing music when I was in high school and then when I started my undergrad uh, in Victoria, just kind of fell in love with how evasive poetry can be. Mm. Um, and it is one of the few things in my life that I feel has like a bottomless quality. Uh, Akin to like, you know, looking at plants also has like that bottomless quality. Like the world is full of ineffable, marvelous moments and uh, things to stare at and contemplate. But um, when it comes to language, I just love the way that a poem, a good poem, at least in my opinion, can kind of uh, feel like it's slipping away while also resonating. 
So it's kind of that interplay that I'm interested in. Yeah, that was the that was the love at first sight. Well, so what was the very first poem poem that you do you remember the first time that you heard a poem that you're it's kind of like hearing a song or a band. It's like it speaks to you. Do you remember when that moment was and what that was? I like maybe like some Wallace Stevens when I was like 17 or 18. The idea of order at Key West is a poem mm. that I can still read and be astonished by and mm. perplexed by. I have no idea what's going on. Um, and there are just so there's a voice in there that I, that that comes back to me. Um, also, Mina Loy's poems, mm. um, Songs to Joannis. Wow. That was another one where it was uh, disturbing. Um, and just memorable in a way that also evaded memory. <laughs> like it was like, there's something so technical about it. Uh, and uh, I also really love like little tiny short poems. So that was kind of uh, a suite of short poems was something I was amazed by. And last thing, I guess like there is this thing, like chat books. So spineless books of poetry, those little slim volumes you can kind of see lying around. There was a shop in Victoria that had old chat books just from BC writers for the most part. Mm. And just falling in love with like the tech, the tactile quality. So like the heavy paper, like chapbooks in the seventies weigh like 30 pounds. So it's like, just like the weight of the paper and just kind of like the texture of the words being like pressed in. Some of the poems were not great, but I just was obsessed with carrying those little volumes around. And I still like collect them whenever I run into ones that like strike my eye as much as my ear or my, my heart. Well, I think it's it's really cool the things that speak to us as children. And as children, I know for me, it was really important. There were certain things about me that you couldn't take away. And one of the things was my love for writing. So, and I think poetry even more so is such a personal journey. It is a personal, and you and your, your work has uh, such a great mix of feeling and Un, there's a sense of, of unease sometimes, there's a grittiness, but then there's also an immense amount of love. I mean, the, the poem about your son, you have a son. Yeah, yeah. You well, want right. yeah. to talk about him? <laughs> um, my son Eddie's two. Yeah, so oh, um, I've been, uh, Eddie makes some appearances in Unbecoming, especially around like legacy accountability. Yeah. Um, and just uh, the kind of a terrifying state of the world now as well you know so looking to the future with uneasy eyes is like definitely a, a quality of these poems i love the fact that you found i mean kids inspire creation i believe uh especially playfulness and curiosity and all that stuff so i i just love the fact that you incorporate i hope i didn't give anything away but i just <laughs> Tonight yeah, I wasn't supposed to say anything. You didn't put that in your rider. Um, your work is uh, personal. Uh, um, where did the spark of inspiration come from with Unbecoming? Um, so these were poems that I proposed as, I, I haven't told you this before. So they, they were poems that were pro proposed to kind of contemplate how poetry might do activism. Um, and then what I kind of found was as I started working through the collection, like that sense of accountability and legacy and lineage um, and a sense of relationship to place that is tenuous um, and attempting to be responsible, I think kind of shifted them more into a personal lens than I expected and really rejected any idea of speaking in a voice that uh, is not, does not feel like 
one of my own, you know? So yeah. not to speak for someone else was like a really important element of this collection in particular. Yeah. I love it. And, and I got that. I got that. I didn't know that you kept that from me too. Thanks. But you know, like I felt that I feel that with many of the poems, it's, 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 it is, I feel like I'm on the inside of, of, of the main character or the person that's speaking. So you did a really great job with that. So um, I think, are you ready to read? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy Neil's work. Um, I'd love to start by just saying thank you so much uh, uh, to Baron for the conversations leading up to this time. Um, and to also to Sadie McGillivray, who's been just so accommodating and helpful in putting this event together. Uh, and, I'll, and just everyone else as well at the Writers Guild of Alberta. And then I can't see any of you, just so you know, but if there's anyone out there, thanks <laughs> for being here. Um, I'm in a different place uh, than Barron is. So I just really want to say, like to begin, uh, by acknowledging the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, so the Siksika, the Bagani, the Ganai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chinookee, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. And the city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. So as was kind of hinted at at the beginning of this, um, my son Eddie was born here, and that kind of complicates my relationship to this place, and I think that um, that comes through in some of the poems, or at least I would venture that it does. Um, I'd like to start with the eponymous poem from this collection, which actually is the last poem in the collection. Um, so the book is not out yet, uh, but I'd be grateful uh, to have anyone out there pick it up <laughs> when it does come out, which will be around kind of the end of November. So this poem is called Unbecoming. Night advances like molasses, creeping over the carton white mountains. Next to this foreclosed casino, a dormant bog shallow breeds. Mealy ornamental apples snick in spindly, frost-shocked trees potted around the patio. Across the valley, a last worker exits the quarry, headlights glowing between shale piles like a skull placed on a candle. We're due for some luminous thinking, this very early snow and all. But why plan when you can gamble? There's only one guarantee. Nests naked without leaves, vomit on the paving stones. The world appears, exceeds, and unbecomes too quickly for certainty. Just enough for love to burn, burn with cold, then go so numb. Blackening toe will salvage or cut. So <clears throat> there is a poem about the nature of poetry and Ars Poetica. It's titled Ars Poetica um, in Unbecoming. Um, but I kind of wonder if this poem that I'm going to read next is the Ars Poetica that is really at the core of the collection. Um, the one thing you need to know about it before you hear it out there in the world is that um, there's the word till in it. And till here means like the contracted version of until rather than the idea of tilling soil. Renfrew, bungalow after bungalow, teeth on a saw, heavy bag hung from a branch, mid-construction's end pond, gnomes lazing on pea gravel beside a breeze-blocked truck, tool shed turned infrared sauna, and everywhere the wounded smell of clipped grass, chemical defense, distress signal to other grass, 
the kind of message the receiver wishes he could do something about, guarantee his own safety or health. Poetry is such a wounded smell. At best, we feel exhilarated by our rootedness and the crude whirling blade that moans in view that veers without notice. Till then, feed trough planted with herbs, river stones accrued for later, wind sock swollen with the weather. Um, this next poem is called Reservoir. Carp lurk through suburbs when runoff jumps the dam, sucks manhole covers up like corks, slops wallpaper with septic hands. I mostly keep my body close, row but rarely quit its cul-de-sacs, save in, say, a dense flicking stand of thin birches, their tigered stalks quivered by the spring wind, cool light trickling through the tossing stems. Then, if lifted, if moved to swim among the future sprigs, bald now in burgundy armored buds like tiny minarets, I see it all without me, abandoned nests, old anthill pox, and am reminded that the verb to be veers down but never loses speed completely. I am not undying, nor ever pre-bloom, just a reservoir of energies that pour in spool around me, stream in floods of words that, like fish scales on furniture, cling for a while and shine, the dull way dried tears shine. Okay, I don't know if you're out there, but this poem, Desire Path, is dedicated to my friend Kirby. Desire Path. Whereas the city's gravel trail snakes from side to side, nooked with oversized benches that stick, layered stain on stain on spectral swastikas and heart-trapped names, this path cuts straight through the wiry grass. Yet, as is often the case with desire, it swerves suddenly and got shy. Standing now in this stand of ruddy, belt-tipped branches, parsing scrub as it wildly parts and reparts its hair, I think how to get here Someone had to veer off, followed by many others, and then all had to turn back, unless a few met face to face, and this became a meeting place. <sighs> that was the gayest. That was the gayest sigh I could give. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Karen. I really um, worked on that side. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, this poem is called McIntyre Bluff, and it's kind of set in the Okanagan, uh, like kind of more to the south of where I grew up. The one thing you need to know about this poem is that Masaru Emoto is mentioned in it, and he was a pseudoscientist um, who did work uh, photographing water crystals after he had either insulted or affirmed them. So those of you out there in the void, maybe someone has seen these books before. I think they have names like The Secret Life of Water. So the insulted ones, um, like the water crystals, when they were insulted would look torn or scorched and the affirmed ones would become like more symmetrical and begin to glow. Uh, so it's a very heartening idea in terms of the power of language. The only problem is that uh, Masaru Emoto's work has never been replicated. So there is also this, uh, this feeling of being tricked that might be at play in this poem. 
His home is called McIntyre Bluff. Swirling like burnt leaves, then settling, starlings land on Merlot vines, planted so close to the highway, diesel plumes and pitched bottles of piss from hurtling semis must imbue the tasting notes the way abused water crystals look scorched in the micro photos of Masaru Emoto. From up here, where the air is placid and hot enough that the blotchy rocks emit a sour vinyl smell, the vines span all the way to the prison. Wait, I see now the smells that fresh paint on the ledge below, Sheena and Pierce glistering in the grim sun. Everyone from this valley knows someone who knew someone who fell off such a cliff trying to spray the landscape with their love. I used to know Sheena. She'd report her salvia trips in band. She sucked at saxophone, never sheathed her reed. And I'd heard Pierce was gay from the same girl who proclaimed my hair gay and choir and Pinot Gris. Masaru, did you ever see your scorched water crystals scorch others like people do in a long cruel chain? Can the scorched ever be healed? Um, this next poem uh, is set in, on uh, Salt Spring Island, kind of close to Ruckle Bay, if anyone has been there before. Maybe you have seen this. <laughs> um, infinities. At this sharp crook in Beaver Point Road, a cumulus of blackberries frizzes with ripe fruit, veined leaves. Cars slip past like swallows in the throat, while three wild horses tug droplets off the spiny boughs, their wire-twisting briar lips tenderly efficient. On this crisp July evening, they're completely ignoring me. Looking down, I suddenly notice the grasses Teeming with baby toads. Um, this poem is after uh, Charles Simic's poem um, called The Infinite, which ends with the line, does it find us good to eat? Uh, so this poem is called The Infinite Replies. You dog at a mirror. How do you glimpse yourself only when you move? Air is fertile, all perfumed moats, pollen, mole. Do you really feel desperate? Or did a subwoofer just bloom over there? Savory nausea, bird everything. The difference between me and you? Um, Baron, this is the, the sun poem. This is a poem, this is a weird poem to read at this time because when it first uh, was written, you could go to the grocery store with an infant strapped to your chest and uh, that was normal. <laughs> just bang around in the in the grocery store so um it got, it, that's definitely at play uh and it's not some sort of uh cry of neglect like it, it it happened in the past and the first the title is also the first word bewilderment does not become a consumer my son strapped to my chest will not remember this grocery run nor tasting this chilean peach i'm thumbing for soft so much displaces in the realms of produce and memory. We feel and feel till someone has to care for us. I hope he will visit. We pass the milk, the sweets, the butcher. 
all the while he sleeps, which strangers love, stopping to simper. I wonder if their snuffles, their pinching of wrappers, filter through his dreams, his separate dark, those ears that match my brothers. Subtler, subtler, beat our hearts down aisles of cluttered grits. So this last poem is the last section. Um, so this is the last poem I will read. Um, so thanks for listening to my poems out there, if you are out there. I don't know, there's a lot of paranoia. I'm trying to turn it into um, what uh, Kaveh Akbar calls pro-noia. So instead of the sense that the world is conspiring against you, pro-noia is that sense that the universe is conspiring to aid you or to support you <laughs> in becoming something. Um, so with some pro-noia, if you are out there, um, this is my last poem. And uh, this is, it's actually a section of a long poem called Outposts, which is kind of like a long poem considering queer friendship. Um, and it's, this section is called The Coda, and it's written to a partner. Coda, or your body, mine to hold sometimes, even when it's sick, or stippled with cold, or streaked with crying, or sour with fear, invisible, but there in the dark. I've heard your stomach growl. I've heard sharp breaths as we waded through streams. The splat of creek on purple stones when you wrung out your hair. Plaster dry seaweed crunching underfoot along the waterline. You notice when words mistranslate to touch, share friendships, their queer tenderness, their limits. Islands in lakes in islands in the motley ocean. We rasp up gravel shores, drift into the murky distance, and birth again, anchorless and buoyant. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it's like emerged from, yeah, <laughs> wherever I was. So. You weren't alone. We were all listening. <laughs> Oh, those are so fat. Oh my gosh. And to hear them read out loud, there is something amazing about that because I don't have to like get a thesaurus or, you know, <laughs> I, I don't have to say it myself because even the rhythms are, they aid the way the the piece is is meant to be read, right? Like, I hope so, at least sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, glad you were reading it and not me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't even read my own notes at the beginning. So, no, it was beautiful. Thank you. Um, so uh, we are, please ask us some questions, not me, but please ask Neil some questions. Uh, Sadie's going to uh, translate any of those over to us. But uh, while we wait for your millions of questions that are totally going to come in any moment, um, I, I think like uh one of the questions i have is um so i found lovely surprises in your work darkness and light love and grit can you speak to the importance of having these paradoxes within your poems yeah totally um thanks for that question i it's like a it reminds you of this kind of sense that i maybe just like as i uh, i don't know get get a little older or <laughs> whatever but like uh there's like a kind of 
joy or exuberance or elation or gratitude even sometimes in finding like the perfect word for a pain that might be alleviated because it has been articulated or in the same way that like um, there's, there can be a, a sense of like joy in, in, in lessening the pressure of suffering with language. Um, and that to me is the kind of that interplay or that paradox that I think you're kind of like pointing toward uh, this idea of like love and grit at the same time. And also this feeling that like, I can love someone that I think I need to hold accountable um, and uh, or vice versa, right? Um, I can hold someone accountable whom I love. <laughs> um, and at the same time, like that sense of moments, there are moments I think of elation and joy or satisfaction, at least in these poems that um, are where in which the speakers are also aware of like the ephemerality of those, uh, like the fact that that is bound to pass, that the feeling of joy will morph or shift into something else. Um, and I think that because language just naturally has a short half-life in terms of hitting right where we want it to hit, um, I think that has to be something that's embraced in the poem. Um, yeah. So I don't know, I'd almost think of it as like a counterpoint, right? In between like the moment of suffering to the moment of relief, the moment of relief returning to suffering. Um, and alongside just the contexts of, our, of this weird year, year and a half we've had, <laughs> And before and what is to come, uh, surely there will be struggle and strife that we need to try to thrive in. Well, and I, I like that. And I, when I was um, young, one of my favorite movies, when I was living up in high level, we had the movie channel and I would lose myself in movies. And there, there's the one with Tom Cruise and the, uh, Tim Curry is the devil. And the, I know this film. That's cool. Well, that film, I can't remember the name of it, but it was so good. And the devil says, uh, and a hot devil too, I must say. Um, <laughs> but the devil says you cannot have light without darkness, right? You can't have, I think that what I love about your work is that the dark makes the light brighter and vice versa. And is that intentional? Like I, I, can only imagine that there are moments in your writing where you may have to like dig really super deep in order to find out exactly what you're trying to say, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, I well, hopefully not too, they don't feel too opaque, but I get that feeling. Yeah, and, the, and part of that is just that like, to me, um, one of the quote unquote benefits or opportunities afforded us by um, poetic form um, and, you know, there are people who write in all kinds of, like, make all kinds of shapes of poems and um, kinds of poems. But for me, there's something about the fact that a line that is broken brings something into greater contrast that may have been buried in a long sentence that goes from mm. the the page to the edge of the page. Uh, that is, like, just deeply exciting. And um, in the same way that, right, like, you know, people always talk about that, like, the tension of the poem being the fact that it is like, how to how could you ever end something that is defined by that sense of rupture at the end of the line, starting again yeah. in the net. Um, and uh, I think that is like a really interesting way to kind of like dig at the sharpness of contrast that might be achieved. You know, so. Yeah, I, sorry, I, I was paying attention and then I wasn't because somebody sent in a message. Um, there is an interest in hearing more poetry, but only if there is time after. I was just gonna say, okay, so there was a poem that you wrote and I don't wanna give it away, but it is you in a car with somebody and you're, you're in a car and it's, okay, it's you and your dad. 
<laughs> you, do you know that one? Yeah, totally. Yes. It's really long. But you know I that one? Yeah, yeah, okay. Do you know I, who wrote I that one? Know, I have it on the ground, but I can grab it. Okay, it's well, right you, know, I, <laughs> well, you know what? I really like that one, but if you want to find something else that you... I just have daddy issues, so there's, I understand that it feels like that thing of, you know, loving but not knowing quite how to communicate, right? Yeah, totally. uh, I, I'd be honored to read, like, it's a very long poem, so I can read, like, the beginning and a little bit at the middle if you want. I mean, there we've got 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, sure. People don't um, want to hear my voice. <laughs> um, I, I enjoy it. Um, I would be honored to read a little bit of this poem called The Minimum if you're interested. Is that yes. Sure. Okay. Please. Um, so just yeah, the poem when is you're done. Just so, oh, go ahead. Let me know when you're uh, when you're when you're done. Okay? Yeah, that's good. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, this poem was written when um, I like so when my grandfather died, uh, it was a time when like right before he died, going traveling out to the end, like over the process of um, him passing, uh, I, there were just some moments of accountability, I guess, that came to the fore and questions of legacy and lineage that I hadn't really considered. Um, and so this is a poem that I really started during my master's, which was like in 2014. Um, and I could just never really get a sense that it was hitting the right spot. And so I, uh, like a, um, a dear friend, when I was discussing the problem of finding a form for this poem, um, suggested that I just kind of like loosen up. And it, so it started to tumble a little bit more. Um, uh, the poet and novelist and critic Larissa Lai uh, talks about this idea of tumbling or propulsion in a poem. And it, I think that the minimum does this a little bit. So I'll just read you the first part and maybe the end part because um, some more kind of family stuff comes in as well. The minimum. What is the minimum required to convey a landscape I wonder, as my father and I drive from Saskatoon to PA, and all that divides land from sky is a faint crease at road's end. Dear eyes flare, but otherwise the snow spans evenly on all sides, and it's hard to say how close we are to anything but one another. And so, being not close, I fix on lone farmhouses slight windows, fending off the dust like pilot lights. This is where my father's family restarted, 40 below on a crude plot, etc. All the pioneer non-apologies, neo-peasantry, not even bootstraps to pull, become an ethics of work, survivor's pride, leisure earned, and never one to whine, feelings tucked like perch under ice, turned isolation, turned isolation in old age, brute stubbornness, a frail rage. He refuses to eat, Dad says. I nod and watch the mill slide past, frost glinting on fresh stacked timber. So the poem continues like this for hopefully not too long, but for a while. And I'd just like to read you the final bit because I think it will kind of shift, kind of shift or um, solidify some of the parts of this conversation that have already been coming forward. Um, so here it is. The morning my son is born, dawn spreads like feeling into numb limbs, and rain the smell of burnt sugar soaks the rough remnants of asphalt in the lane. 
all I want to do is love without impediment. To live, not survive, brazenly out of focus. Enough for a horizon line to thread off in the distance while we learn to walk more gingerly, watching for rivulets of ants, the squat, thick-petaled prairie crocus. I call my dad, share details, his weight, his name, how powerful his mother is. The minimum to convey amidst dogged relinquishments, the gravity of such an appearance, how much it means we get to change. So that's the beginning and end <laughs> of that poem. <laughs> and what, an, what a gorgeous turn, right? Like from that uncomfortable moment in the car and trying to, you know, that to suddenly he's the one that you call to celebrate. I mean, that's, it's lovely. It's a lovely, I mean, he gave you that, he gave you that safety to, you know, want to go back and say, I did it, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, we have a question. Aren't you excited? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody is as excited as I am right now. Um, so uh, this is from Pad, uh, Pam Medland. And her question is, how do, you, how do your academic studies inform your creative work? Hmm. Ooh, that's a cool question. Um, oh, in a lot of ways. So I just finished, uh, or what is it called? Finished, defended um, my PhD in, at the end of July. And it had, a part of it was a manuscript of poetry. The other part was kind of a long essay on literary theory and I do, I know some people will say that like the poem is theory on its own, but it's really hard to talk about poems in, in prose, right? And I, I like, I think that's one of the interesting elements of doing academic work in poetics while also striving to be a quote unquote poet um, is that like critical language um, and just like the seriousness of critical work can sometimes just be really inspiring, whether to look at it like a little slyly and to reject it um, or to just really let something resonate and try to articulate it um, adjacently in poetic form. So that's like one of the ways. The other way that like academic studies have really informed creative work in particular is that um, like just the sense of community around writing that I found was formed both during my master's um, at the University of Toronto where like the Toronto writing community was um, kind of like, you know, discreet and disparate, but also welcoming and like, um, just as, like people really helped, I felt like I felt like people were invested in me growing and I felt really invested in other writers growing as well. So that was like a, just an intimacy that I'm really grateful for. And in terms of like a PhD, uh, like a community alongside just this like sense of accountability around being rigorous that I think is like, a, it's, you know, a kind of brain, a part of the brain that um like benefits from exercise <laughs> so like um and uh I don't know there for me a lot of the time like poems kind of spring up like mushrooms around the edges of a text that I'm working on um or a review I'm trying to write um that that different kind of voice kind of like pops through so um Pam I don't know if that answers your question at all but I hope it kind of like gets there a little bit <laughs> Well, I mean, on paper, though, it, it, I love that. Thank you, Pam, for that question. Um, on paper, I mean, you just think 
it's I love how something like uh, your education it doesn't isn't just something that gives you the tools to do the job right the creative process of writing, but it it informs it and it 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 doesn't draw away, which is sort of left brain, right brain thing. It's that it, but it does help. It does work to sort of create the, the type of work that you, the, or the messages you want to get across. Does that there's also, yeah, totally. And there's also, I did the last thing I'd add to it that kind of built on that is that there was like a distinct pleasure in reading um, poets trying to define poetry or say what it does outside of their own poems. Um, my favorite is maybe like Kay Ryan's essay called Specs, this like series of vignettes. They're basically just like metaphors for what poetry is and does. Um, these little lights off in the distance on dark water or um, like raw wire trying to be threaded together with heat. These like just these beautiful metaphors. And um, it's kind of like the work of thinking about poetry in, in an academic context just gave me an excuse to just read these fabulous um, and strange uh, definitions of what a poem is or what it does. Um, and like, of course, like across history, people have uh, been writing defenses of poetry, not only defending like the existence of poetry, but also saying like why it has a valuable place in society, right? Um, and it's just kind of fun to think about how poetry can go on offense <laughs> at the same yeah. time. So, and also sometimes that means offending, right? Yeah, so, so. well, yeah, I mean, a good art, and you know I, I think it's so um I mean even just trying to describe because I, I don't read a lot of poetry personally it has to be some it's like art for me a piece of art I have to connect with it in a really like I have to connect to it emotionally if I'm gonna like it and if I'm gonna bring it home Right. And and so a lot of poetry that I read is either way over my head or I don't connect on a soul level to it and work like yours. I, I feel connected. So, um, yeah, um, it's it's beautiful. Um, what are you what what's happening in your life now? What's what's next on the horizon? What next are you writing? You know, chop, chop, because, you know, your book's on <laughs> yeah, sure. Get it out. Um, Another one. So what's I, going on? One side of my life is I'm just about to go start uh, teaching on Vancouver Island for the year. So teaching English courses out there. Um, and that's exciting. And alongside that, so Unbecoming will be coming out at the end of November. So I'm looking forward to like a book tour um, and a chance to kind of uh, hopefully read in person in a few places. So I'll be reading at like Massey Books in Vancouver with poets I just admire so much um, and reading on Zoom with Knife Fork Book in Toronto um, and on Zoom, I think so far for Calgary, but maybe I'll try to fly out and read at Shelf Life Books. So just kind of starting to tether together a funny little experiment in touring mid or in, in amid pandemic fatigue. <laughs> but the like um, the other, like the work that I'm starting to think about is just that kind of interplay of emptiness um, and fatigue I think around kind of like uh, just seeing like sense of like parts of the world I hold dear kind of deteriorate deteriorating um, mm -hmm. alongside like that sense of emptying like my life into the next generation and to look to the horizon and um, with care and investment yeah. um, so that there are poems that are starting to come out of that a little bit uh, 
but again that's about as much as I can say about it because it a lot of to me like the work of writing is is always like the work of stumbling upon right? yeah or, or being surprised by um, a configuration or a memory um, and then manipulating it um, so yeah of course total disclaimer for anything you heard in these poems tonight like they're not my life. <laughs> They're like weird little artifacts that got <laughs> chipped away over long periods of time thinking about scenarios and tension, right? Um, but uh, yeah, while looking askew, like really just kind of trying to um, live with gratitude in the face of the ominous. Um, I think uh, we've only got like a minute or so left. Um, so where can people find you? Where can people find your work? Amazon, you know, anything like yeah, that. Yeah, so my book, uh, so both of my full-length collections are up on Amazon. Um, I have a website, just neilsirkan.com, um, and that has links to all of uh, my two books, my two books and chapbooks, um, and some poetry publications you can read online, um, and that would be the best way also just to keep an eye out for, like, what's happening with events going forward. I'm, like, not a, uh, a regimented tweeter in any way, so I'll, you'll be disappointed with my Twitter. Do you have, a, do you have Instagram? No Instagram. So okay. that's, you know, I'm one of those people who just obsesses over other people's lives. I had to, <laughs> I got too, I got too, too invested. So the Kardashians. Yeah, I just got enough. <laughs> that is actually, I think, the perfect place to end it. <laughs> I did too, right on the Kardashians. Just where the thank you. I just want to thank you so much for honoring us with your work and wish you all the luck uh, moving forward. Uh, please uh, please go out and, and get his uh, collection of, of poetry, uh, Unbecoming. And I wanna thank again, the Writers Guild of Alberta and Sadie and Jason, and thanks for all the work that you do. Thanks everyone. Bye, Neil. Thanks again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>